Amen. Thank you, music team, for leading us in song, singing out God's truth this morning. What a joy it is to gather together uh, another week to come and praise our holy God, to just be in awe of who he is. Uh, Let us pray as we uh, begin again to God's word together. Heavenly Father, may we stand in awe of you, your holiness, God, your majesty, and your power as we read from your word this morning. God, your word is truth, and may we see it uh, rightly as that. Lord, grant us a hunger and a passion for your truth. Lord, guide us in wisdom and understanding that we would know the meaning of this text and how it points us to Christ. Lord, increase our love for you and for one another. Help us apply this passage to our lives that we would be challenged and that we'd be changed by your word through the working of your spirit in us, that we'd be obedient followers of Christ. Lord, help me to preach your word with boldness and gentleness, that you will be centered, that you'll be glorified as you continue to save and sanctify your people. And I pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So let me start off with a question, and it might be a tough one. Um, Have you ever resented the life God has given you? Has following him ever seemed like it may not be worth it? Have you doubted his goodness to you? That might be tough for you to answer. Uh, Maybe not to answer, but maybe more to admit And so, Heavenly Father, help us to be honest and open this morning to the truth of your word that quickly exposes our hearts and brings our lives into the light. Because do doubt, does the doubt of God's goodness and blessing lead you to resent, uh, to resentment when you look around at those around you? who don't seem to be following God, yet they seem to be thriving. Life seems to be great, fine and and dandy for them. They don't seem stressed every day. You know, they're getting nicer, bigger houses, even though they already had a nice and bigger house than you. They're getting a nice and newer car, even though their car was working fine. They don't seem to worry about dropping 10 grand on any given day. They don't seem to be disappointed. They're healthy. They're successful. They're attractive. They're popular. They seem to have everything going for them. They get what we want, but what we can't have. And in all this, they're the ones who seem to be in charge of their life. They're not acknowledging God whatsoever. Perhaps they're even mocking him. And what's strange is sometimes we may even admit that that sort of life seems attractive. We're attracted to that. You know, maybe it is worth it. Maybe it's not so bad. So how do we go about these feelings? How do we deal with this doubt of God's goodness? How do we deal with this resentment or seeing this life lived for God with with vanity? How do we navigate this? You know, when we have this question of why me or why not me or why this or why isn't this happening? Let's turn to Psalm 73 together 
And I pray that it gives us some perspective uh, to the situation that we all too often experience. Psalm 73. It reads, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said this, I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Who, am I, who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> As we start going through this, uh, the first point that I see is kind of in the context of verses 1 to 14. And what we can see is that doubt can often lead us to see God's plan with vanity. This psalm is truly a journey that brings us through the feelings of doubt and vanity when it comes to living a life set apart for Christ. The psalmist first recounts God's goodness, which is actually the basis that we can safely come to God and express our doubts and questions. It's really the key to the whole psalm, so it's interesting that it actually starts with this. It's almost like preparing us for what's to come. It's like through this uh, circumstance that the psalmist finds himself in, he came out with this simple but powerful truth. And he wanted to remind us of that at the very beginning. That God is good to the pure in heart. Now, 
He says, he recounts the goodness of God to Israel, but more specifically, as I said, it's to those pure in heart. It's a categorizing term. When Israel is said, he's really clarifying that God's people were those who were pure, who were clean in heart. Not just someone who was from Israel. As it says in Psalm 24, and as we even sang this morning, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has a clean hand and pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Like the psalmist, I pray that we would have clean hands and pure hearts, that we would be able to look on our own life and recount the goodness of our God, shown time and time again and ultimately in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that is my hope, but reality says, you know, life can hit us pretty hard. And we can all too often find ourselves at the edge where our feet almost stumble. We almost slip and we almost fall into this deep pit of envy. If not focused on God and instead on only what we see and perceive with our own eyes. Isaiah 11.3 shows this. A contrast of not judging by what we see or hear, but delighting in our fear of God. We shall not judge by what we see with our own eyes or what we hear with our own ears, but we delight in the fear of our Lord. But all too often, we see things and we perceive things and that's what we see as reality. The wicked, the evil, are thriving You know, they're all well-fed. There's no trouble. There's no stresses. They wear their pride like a badge. They're violent and malicious towards others and shut down any sort of opposition, anything that comes against them. They seem to be succeeding. No matter what comes, anything trying to bring them down from their high hill. And it was not enough that, you know, the wicked are thriving Because not only were the righteous not seeing that same blessing, but the psalmist recounts that he was suffering all day long, stricken and rebuked every morning. Do you ever find yourself in that reality? The good you do doesn't seem to have much of a benefit at all. And those who don't seem to play by the rules are getting away with it. Now I'm kind of a nerd if you know me. I'm into comic books, superheroes, that kind of thing. And when I was reading through this, it reminded me a lot of a very famous movie, a series of movies called Star Wars. You guys might have heard of it before. But that's really the whole concept in Star Wars, isn't it? The light versus the dark. And the whole battle is battling against the dark side in us. Right? but it's easier to give in. You get more immediate results. You get the power, you get the control. No, maybe it wouldn't hurt tapping into that. Maybe you could be a little greedier with what you have. You worked for it, right? You earned it. Maybe it's okay to talk badly about this person. You know, they are pretty annoying. No one else seems to really like them all that much. Is it wrong to maybe just want to be comfortable and content? Would it really hurt if I pulled some strings, cheated a little, boosted my numbers, or spoke badly of another to make myself look better? 
See, the prosperity of the wicked can easily twist our thoughts on sin. We bring our own perspective, our own conclusions, and sometimes sin doesn't seem so bad. It's easier. It's comfortable. We can get what we want, and others are doing it, and they're not seeming to get in trouble. God's not seeming to punish them. So what harm is there? But church, I cannot stress enough how slippery of a slope this kind of thinking is. How easily can our minds and hearts skew the perspective of God's blessing? Because just because someone has material possessions, just because someone seems that they're blessed and that they have wealth, does not equal God's approval of their actions. But that sort of thinking can lead us into what the psalmist says. Right, that there's no fault in them. And how can God know? How can God understand? Is there really knowledge in the Most High? Is there really wisdom in what God is calling us to? In how to live our lives as followers of Him? I pray that we never get to that place. And the psalmist almost did. Where we compromise God's truth, God's ways, and instead accuse Him of unfairness, of injustice, of not understanding our situation. For we have a God who understands. And we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. We read that in Hebrews 4.15. So let not your self-interest or your self-pity or your pride lead you to accuse God of not understanding, of not being good. The next thing I see, starting in uh, verse 15, is we see that doubt is realigned by worshipful repentance. When we're in this place of doubt, when we're in this place of questioning We need to come to God. Because before the psalmist taps into this dark side of thinking, before he starts accusing God of these things, he instead realizes some stuff. First, if he would fall into such a vain way of thinking, it would not only affect him, but also those who come after, also those who are around him. It's a reminder of how selfish we can be at times, especially in these moments of struggle and difficulty. When we act sinfully, thinking it only affects ourselves. First, we're sinning against the most holy God. And then the consequences spread to those around us. The things we say and do can have long-lasting effects on those who come after us. It's something we all need to think about, not just those in leadership, but all of us. We can apathetically think what we do isn't that big a deal. We may just be hurting ourselves, that we'll take the blame if something goes wrong. But there are those who look to us for guidance and leading, and what what we do does affect them. Parents to your kids, grandparents to your grandchildren, Older siblings to younger siblings, you know, elders to church members, youth leaders to youth, children's leaders to children. 
what we do affects those who come after us. We're not in this alone. We're in this together as a family. Secondly, he realized all this he could not understand on his own. He needed someone wiser, someone bigger, with a bigger and different perspective on the whole thing. Ultimately, he needed God. He was wearied from the constant thinking, trying to wrap his head around life and this whole situation that he found himself in. I'm sure you've probably been there before. Um, I'm an overthinker, and so this thing is very legitimate. This thing is very true. Being wearied from just trying to understand your situation. You know, thinking through situations you're faced with, trying to come to some sort of solution, some sort of answer, and yet finding yourself sometimes in the same place that you started. But something I ask myself and I ask you to ask yourself is where did you turn when you were still left with nothing and more weary than when you started? Because in Psalm 73, it bids us to go to God, to go to His sanctuary, to come into His presence. That's when things become clear. That's when we understand. That's when we get God's perspective on all this. I'm reminded of Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's truly what we're looking for, is it not? It's rest. Rest from the difficulty of this life. Rest from trying to run this rat race of getting the good life, of succeeding. Jesus calls us to himself. The psalmist comes to God into his presence, and that was when things were more clear. Maybe not fully answered, or the answer he was looking for, but it was exactly what he needed. It was what he needed to hear and to realize. And this leads him to declare the truth and to come in worshipful worshipful confession and repentance, seeing God not as some object of speculation, but as the true focus of our worship, as the true focus of the life that we live out. Because the fate of the wicked was realized, that although God's timing of justice may seem long, it continues with a confident assurance. That in the coming of Christ, God will fulfill all promises of justice for both the godly and pure in heart who put their belief in Christ as their Savior and for the wicked who put their hope in themselves and earthly things. Because we see, in fact, they are in the slippery places that God put them in. In verse 18, they are the ones who will slip and fail, they will go to their ruin. All they relied on, including their own life, destroyed in a moment. Our God, who is sovereign and eternal and unmatched, will have the last say with these evildoers. Their future is the undoing of all they have lived and strived for. Not only this loss of everything and utter end, but the reality of God's complete dismissal of them 
They are like a dream that goes when someone wakes, a phantom that is unnoticed. It's what's echoed in Matthew 7, 23, when Jesus tells the false followers, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. And this is why we're called to worship in all that we do. Why we gather to worship together, to remind ourselves of these things, to remind ourselves of the end for us and for those who are wicked and against God. Realizing that worship isn't just singing songs together, but actively living for Christ in all that we do. Giving our life to Him. Corporately, we come together to glorify God, to open His Word, seeing His truth, to walk in obedience, to encourage one another in the faith, to celebrate and mourn together, to come before God and be reminded of the truth of His Word, the promises that He gives us, and the hope that we have in Christ. Because what Christ has done is greater than anything in this world. We have assurance in Him. We are rich in Christ. And as we come face to face with God, our perspective is changed. And our hope is assured in His promises of salvation and redemption through Christ, who died on the cross, who took on our sin, who became a curse for us, who bore God's wrath on himself when we were deserving of all that. And we do nothing to earn that, but we come in repentance and belief. We proclaim that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and we are promised that we will have salvation and we will have eternal life with God forever, glorifying him together. But in the moment, how often do we look at that? And so that's why we need to be reminded. Because when we come to God, it truly does lead us to a place of repentance. How we've always accused Him of, you know, not being good, of not giving us what we want. But He's given us all that we need in Christ. What a flipped reality that God invites us into. The psalmist, although suffering, actually comes in confession of his bitterness, his self-seeking, his ungrateful attitude, right, which actually helps him better quench that doubt, that envy, that vain thinking. Right? How often do we come to God thinking that he owes us something when we really should be coming in repentance and humility for falsely accusing him of things? Right? Realizing we don't deserve any of this. We shouldn't even be here right now. God should have wiped us out a long time ago. But he is patient with us. He is gracious to us. He has given us Christ. And so may we focus on Christ together and not ourselves. Because that helps us persevere through this doubt when we see those around us who seem to be blessed, who seem to be given so much although they're not following God. I pray we pray the same prayer uh, in Mark 9, 24. I believe, help my unbelief. Five simple words, but so powerful. We can believe these things of God, and yet 
how hard it is for us to actually believe these things, to actually live in them. Because God doesn't call us out of something amazing into something terrible. He calls us out of something deadly and finite into something life-giving and eternal. And he bids us to come in repentance to realign our perspective from ourself to him. Because when we come to God, we see the true reality. And so as we come to the end of this psalm, in verses 23 to 28, we see that doubt should lead us to take joy in the presence and glory of God. As he's come in repentance, you now see a big turn. As he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. I had the opportunity to do uh, some high ropes climbing with my cousins a week or so ago. Uh, and it reminded me a lot of this idea. Um, you had these little clip things that you would hang on, and you'd like, clip onto the wires that would go around, and you'd go across different elements, different ladders. And it was kind of scary because you're up like 20 feet in the air, walking along wooden boards on a ladder with nothing around you. But you have this harness on, you have these things clipped, and sometimes you forget that they're there. But when you fall, you're reminded, aren't you? (laughs) They had you actually doing a trust fall so that you were used to it, right? Before you actually got way up high. So you know what it felt like. And is this not God constantly with us? Sometimes we forget he's there. But in those moments of falling, we're reminded of his presence. He is always with us. He is holding our hand. Thank God for his mercy to us. That although we beat his chest, we scream, we beg, we accuse, we cry out. Though we be brutish and like a beast towards him, he still loves. He still listens. He still forgives and pursues. He bids us to bring these things to him. That he will show us who he is, who we follow, who we serve, that he is with us. The psalmist painted this first contrast at the beginning of the psalm between the wicked and the righteous. How the wicked seemed to be thriving and how the righteous were suffering and downcast. But it almost got flipped in verses 23 to 28. Because he now describes the joys and blessings of turning to God after his confession of his narrowed perspective. He forgot the joy and comfort of being in God's presence, of having God with us of his nearness, his guidance, his glory, of Christ our advocate who speaks on our behalf, who makes us clean and pure, our refuge that we can find in him, our strength when we are weak. Verses 23 to 24 show this theological progression of our salvation in Christ. He grasps our hand, then he guides us And in the end, he receives us into glory. God does not leave us. He walks with us through this journey. And it's an echo of Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Praise God. 
for that truth. What a promise of our God to our salvation, not by what we have done, but what he has done, which leads the psalmist to express that sole need of God for who else on earth or in heaven is there who can accomplish the things that he has done. Who else is there to turn to, to rely on, to save us but our most holy God? Who is our assurance when our situations in life are unpromising and overwhelming but God? In verse 26, he says, Though my heart and flesh may come to an end, though we may die, God is still our strength and portion, for he has conquered even death. Realizing that our God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. We have true life in our God. And so I ask this question, if we had nothing else but God, would that be good enough for you? If your house was taken away today, if your family was taken away today, would his portion suffice? Is God enough? Is God good enough? God brings the pure in heart near, and the evil are cast off, far away, and their end is determined and final. The psalmist concludes, as he looks back at his previous bitterness of circumstance, that it is indeed better to be near God. That his envy was misplaced and his vanity towards his life lived out for God was a complete fallacy. What is better than to be near God, the greatest good we could have? And his response is to tell the works, all the works of our amazing God. Whereas before his tongue was held back of accusing God, Though so close, though he almost slipped and he almost said something, now in this new perspective, he can't help but boldly proclaim what God has done for him. And it's a reminder to me of how often I can complain of my woes, and yet I don't express the utter miraculous works that God has done for me and for you. We could spend eternity proclaiming what God has done for us. And yet, so many times, we focus on complaining of our woes, of our troubles, which he still listens to, and he still hears. But it all brings us back to the truth at the very beginning, that God is truly good to those who are pure in heart. Maybe not in the way that we wanted, but in the way that we need. We are in need of our Savior For we have sinned against a holy God, but God gave us Christ. For whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so, in our questions of doubt, I pray that we draw near to God in humble worship, to be reminded of his truth, of his goodness and assurance of salvation in Christ.
And so I put out that call to you who are listening, maybe here or online, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, that today would be that day, that he is calling you. If you're drowning in doubt, as you look around at the blessings of others, as you wrestle and struggle through this life, trying to find some kind of hope or success, I pray stop searching in the earth and look to heaven. Look to God. Turn to Christ with hands of repentance, knowing the full promise of forgiveness that God offers us when we put our faith and belief in him. See the real truth of our world. See the reality of those who are wickedly going against God, that their end is coming. Trust in God and trust in his ways. And if you are already following Christ, if you've already put your faith in Christ, I pray that you continue to look to the gospel. We need to be reminded of the gospel each and every day. Look to God's word. Look to his truth. See who he is, that you may not slip into envious and vain thinking of the life that God has given you. For we are blessed beyond what we deserve. For we deserve death. We deserve God's wrath and punishment on us. But thanks be to God who gave us his son. Let's not forget the pleasures of God's nearness, of serving God, of obeying him, the joy that we can find in living our life for him, of being in his very presence, having his spirit, and recalling what Christ did on the cross. We cannot win this battle of doubt unless we enter the sanctuary of God and see the truth of our end and the end of the wicked. So I pray that when you came in here this morning and when you leave, that you would be in awe of who God is, in awe of what he's done. Not in awe of how nice the church looks, not in awe of how good the music may have been, not in awe of how good the preaching may have been, but in awe of our most holy God. That is my prayer for us, because that is what is going to help us to continue to persevere in this life. I pray that we have grateful hearts as we reflect on what God has done. Because brothers and sisters, there will be many times that doubt comes creeping at your door. Combat it with God's truth, with God's promises. Run to him, bring it to him on your knees and in tears. Fall before him and cry out. Repent if need be and be reminded that he is good to those who are pure in heart. And we are clean in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be in your word this morning, to be reminded of who you are. God, to be reminded of your promises, to be reminded of the reality of the life that we live in, God. God, we can look around at our world and see so many people who seem to be doing so much better than we are and yet are completely turned away from you. God, who are going the complete opposite direction of what you call them to, and yet they seem to be blessed, they seem to have your favor, but God, may we not see with only our eyes and our ears, but God, see through your truth and your perspective. God, that their end is to come, 
that you are not approving of their life that they are living, God. For God, we know what you call us to, and that is in your word. And so God, I pray that we bring our doubts to you, that if there are those who are struggling with doubts, struggling of understanding your goodness to us, God, may they bring it to you. May they come on their knees and be reminded of your truth. God, if there are those who have not put their faith in you, God, may today be that day. For God, we cannot combat this doubt apart from you. We do not understand the ways of how this world works unless we come into your sanctuary, God, and come into your presence. For that truly opens our eyes to the perspective of things. So God, may we come to you to trust in you, to trust in your goodness, your faithfulness to us, to rest in Christ. God, may we be bold in being your disciples and being followers of you, sharing the good news and hope that we have. God, may we be a joyous, celebratory people because of what you have done. And God, may we seek purity only in Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.